Sound Words, Christian Magazine, Volumes 41-50. Republished by Irving Risch, host of Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Exodus, The Book of Redemption and Relationship. A. Shepherd. We will go through the entire book in 24 parts. Part 9 of 24. Exodus chapter 12. It is worthy of note and of no little significance that it was in Egypt that Israel had to keep the Passover. The first verse of chapter 12 points to this. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. God has been moving steadily onwards towards the accomplishment of his purposes with regard to their deliverance. But to the children of Israel as to us, sinners of the Gentiles, the mercy of God reaches us where we are, in our state of darkness and of death. The people which sat in darkness saw a great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up, Matthew chapter 4 verses 15 to 16. There may be much exercise and earnest groping after light in order to escape from the oppressive darkness by which our hearts and minds are enveloped, a darkness which can only be defined as ignorance of God. But all our efforts only confirm that no advance can be made in our relationships with God until the shelter of the cross is reached and known. The truth of this is borne out in a very remarkable way in verse 2, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months, it shall be the first month of the year to you. Grace gives us this new beginning, our past history. That dark tragic history when we were without God in this world, is blotted out forever. Oh, the kindness of God to blot out the past, yet how solemn to contemplate that we may have lived many years which God regards as of no account. Time counts for nothing before God as long as the sinner is in his sins, we have not begun to live in God's estimation until we are sheltered under the blood of Christ. Until then every day adds to our guilt and how pregnant with results for eternity should we continue in that condition. How blessed to hear the pardoning voice of a Saviour God, as in sovereign grace he brings us under all the value of the shed blood of the mediator of a new covenant, saying, I will remember no more. He does not remember our sins and iniquities when he treats us as though these had never happened, in virtue of the atoning work of Christ. How blessed to see nothing whatever in his conduct toward us which would indicate his remembrance of them. As another has said, when not only they are no more a shadow in our heavens, but not a mote even in the sunshine of his perfect love. His not remembering, has its solemn as well as its gracious side. Love would gladly remember, what must our past have been when love graciously draws the veil over it. The blood of the Lamb of God's providing is that which alone could righteously blot out our sinful past and introduce us to the glorious vistas of that new creation. That system of divine glory of which the Father is the source is the Father of glory. With regard to the selection of the I Am for sacrifice, the numbers mentioned are of more than passing interest. Since there is little doubt that numbers are employed in scripture as symbols, symbols of infinitely great realities, particularly in regard to what is now before us. In Exodus chapter 12 verses 3, 6, the Spirit has used these numbers with consummate care and excellence, if one may so speak reverently of the Spirit's work. And has thus given them a character of profound signification since they refer typically to a period of the life of the Lord Jesus which was of exquisite pleasure to the heart of God the Father. But let us ponder for a moment the description of the Lamb which had to be selected. Human sentiment and imagination have combined to give us a completely erroneous idea of this Lamb, and since this involves the solemn question of what was necessary to meet the divine requirements. It is not only desirable but also essential to have our thoughts corrected and brought into complete correspondence to the mind of God. 
In the fifth verse the children of Israel are told, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a yearling male, you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. It was to be a mature animal. It was a type of that blessed one of whom we read in Luke chapter 3 verse 23, and Jesus himself was beginning to be about 30 years old, the Levite age. Coming from the obscurity of despised Nazareth, he identified himself with the repentant remnant by being baptized in the river Jordan, fulfilling, as he had said, all righteousness, while by their baptism they confessed how far they had departed from it. As he stands on the banks of the Jordan praying as the dependent one, heaven is opened, the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form as a dove upon him, and a voice out of heaven declares, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I have found my delight. How blessed to discern in the voice out of heaven, the voice of the Father in his acknowledgement of the Son. So the Lord Jesus stands on the threshold of his public ministry in perfect maturity, in the full vigor of manhood. And yet does not the description, without blemish, fall far short of what he was in all the flawless, spotless purity of his own unique person. A real man in very truth. Yet the sinless one who knew no sin, and did no sin. No flaw of mortality lurked in his blessed person. Holy in his conception by the Holy Spirit, and sinless in his birth by a virgin mother as she brought forth her firstborn son. Untainted by defilement as he passed through this scene in the power of the Spirit of Holiness. This was the Lamb chosen of God, as answering in every detail to the divine requirements. Can we not say with adoring hearts that he was more than, without blemish? This, yearling male could be taken from the sheep or from the goats. The selection was left open, but whichever was chosen, each presented some aspect of the moral glory of the Lord Jesus. Taken from the sheep, would speak of him as the meek and unresisting one, as the prophet Isaiah speaks of him, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep dumb before her shearers. And he opened not his mouth. Taken from the goat speaks of that holy uncompromising separation from evil on the part of him of whom the beloved apostle can say to the Hebrew Christians, that he was, holy harmless, or preferably, guileless without an evil thought. Undefiled and separate from sinners. These precious traits and many more were consummated in the person of the Lord Jesus and constituted that moral excellence which was displayed in all its fullness and perfection in that wonderful pathway which called forth the deep appreciation of the Father's heart. Attention has already been drawn to the importance of the numerical structure of the Word of God, and as we consider the numbers mentioned in verses 3 and 6 will, as they are intended to do, yield much valuable instruction concerning the pathway of that one who came into this world as the divinely appointed sacrifice for sin. The Lamb was to be taken not on the first of the month, but on the tenth and kept for four days until the fourteenth day at even when it was killed. Ten days elapse before the Lamb is taken. 10 speaks of the measure of human responsibility and refers to that period in the life of the Lord Jesus which is passed over in silence in the four Gospels. What account have we of those 30 years in which our Lord grew up in the retirement and obscurity of Nazareth and carried out the common tasks of toiling men? We have a brief yet absorbing account of those scenes of heavenly joy when the angelic hosts celebrated his lowly birth at Bethlehem. How great the joy of those heavenly hosts, greater far than that by which they celebrated the laying of the foundations of the earth. When, the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. More just those acclamations, than when the glorious band chanted earth's deep foundations, just laid by God's right hand. We have a still briefer account of his visit to the temple as a boy of twelve years, when in reply to his parents' remonstrance he utters these imperishable words. 
Did ye not know that I ought to be occupied in my father's business? And of this Mr. Darby says, if he was the son of God and had the full consciousness of it. He was also the obedient man, essentially and ever perfect and sinless, an obedient child, consciousness of the one did not injure his perfection in the other. But there is another important thing to remark here, it is, that this position had nothing to do with his being anointed with the Holy Spirit. He fulfilled, no doubt, the public ministry which he afterwards entered on according to the power and the perfection of that anointing, but his relationship to his father belonged to his person itself. The bond existed between him and his father. He was fully conscious of it, whatever might be the means or the form of its public manifestation, and of the power of his ministry. He was all that a child ought to be, but it was the Son of God who was so. His relationship to his father was as well known to him as his obedience to Joseph and to his mother was beautiful, becoming and perfect, synopsis of the books of the Bible, volume 3, page 283. From this point the inspired record is silent as to any further account concerning that unique and beauteous life upon which the eye and heart of the father rested with abiding satisfaction and complacent delight. As a tender sucker rising from a dry and rocky land, object of proud man's despising, grew the plant of God's right hand. Then, as divinely instructed, the lamb was taken on the tenth day and kept until the fourteenth day. In John chapter 1, we come to the moment set forth typically in the tenth day when John the Baptist makes that wonderful announcement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Truly he was the Lamb, foreknown indeed before the foundation of the world, but in the ways of God in grace this announcement on the part of John marked the entrance of the Lord Jesus on the path of devoted service. So short yet exceedingly fruitful for the glory and pleasure of God and the blessing of men. This short period of three and a half years of the Lord's public service is foreshadowed in the four days the I Am was kept in the house. How near this blessed one has come to us. A man amongst men. This is Jesus of the Gospels, one we could have seen in the streets of Jerusalem every day pressed by the throng as his loving. Ministering hands with their life-giving touch brought relief to the oppressed and afflicted, one, the hem of whose garment could be touched by the trembling hand of faith and secure that healing virtue for her great affliction. The number four speaks of testing and this follows immediately the announcement of the father's delight and satisfaction in his son. During the thirty years of obscurity in Nazareth he had lived under God's eye alone, now man and the adversary are to test him as they please. The fourfold presentation of that wondrous life in the Gospels, which covers those three and a half years, displays him as the second man in circumstances designedly permitted to be as adverse. As to the first Adam they were favorable, surrounded as he was in Eden with all that witnessed to the munificence and favor of a beneficent creator. But in all the circumstances through which the Lord Jesus passed, and through all the testing to which he was subjected at the hands of his enemies, he approved himself in all his words and works as the one who always did the things that were well-pleasing to the Father. So that every circumstance and testing served only to magnify this blessed one of whom we can say, Thine ointments savour sweetly, thy name is an ointment poured forth, therefore do the virgins love thee. Canticles 1-3 there was the fragrance of the love of God displayed in grace as with lavish hand he dispensed the rich favor of God to needy sinners. How sweet was the savor of his ointments to the Syrophenican of Mark 7, to the woman of Luke chapter 7, and to the woman of John 4 his name conveys all that he is in himself. And if we do not know who he is, how can we rightly estimate all these precious features and excellencies and perfections that may be seen in him?
This then is the one who is none other than the Lamb of God's providing. At the end of these four days, the Lamb was slain. On the fourteenth day, how full of meaning is this fourteenth day for the Passover, a number compounded of the number of testimony, two, and that which speaks of divine and perfect workmanship, seven. How suggestive of that perfect work which is the great subject of God's testimony. The blood of the unblemished and unresisting victim was to be put on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it, in accordance with the divine prescription. The blood was for the eye of God alone. And I will go through the land of Egypt in that night. And the blood shall be for you as a sign on the houses in which ye are. And when I see the blood I will pass over you. It is God whom sin has offended, it is to him that the blood of atonement speaks. There is no reference to the state of the people. Their sole concern was to sprinkle the blood according to the prescribed manner which through the obedience of faith brought them under the sheltering power of the blood according to God's estimate of it. How blessed to dwell on the words of the beloved Apostle in Romans chapter 3 verses 24 to 26. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The one whom God has set forth. As a mercy seat through faith in his blood, for the showing forth of his righteousness at the present time so that he should be just, and justify him that is of the faith of Jesus. No doubt this has reference to the twofold work on the great day of atonement, here and in Romans chapter 4 verse 25. But it demonstrates in a very profound way the infinite value to God of the blood in all its abiding efficacy in virtue of which the righteousness of God is manifested, by faith of Jesus Christ towards all and upon all those who believe, Romans chapter 3 verses 21 to 22. While the blood was their sure and effective shield from the hand of the destroyer, inside they were to feed upon the lamb. All was the provision of his love, the blood to shield them, the flesh to sustain them in that path with God upon which they were now entering. The lamb is to be eaten, all of it. If the household were too little for the lamb, we read nothing of the lamb being too little for the house, then, says the Lord. Let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every one according to his eating shall make your count for the Lamb. This blessed one is all-sufficient either as Saviour or as the sustainer of his people. Our whole resource along the road, nothing but Christ, the Christ of God. Thus God would have our souls sustained. Christ's death has become the food of life, of a life eternal. It is as sheltered and saved from death that we can feed upon him who is our life. Here is the fulfillment of Samson's riddle, out of the eater comes forth meat, and out of the strong sweetness. Eating is appropriation for our need. And God would have our souls sustained by feeding upon Christ and thus appropriate to ourselves what Christ is, for what we appropriate becomes part of ourselves. In the measure in which we spiritually feed upon him, we shall be assimilated to his likeness. As the bread of God which came down out of heaven the Lord Jesus has said, as the living Father has sent me, and I live on account of the Father. He also who eats me shall live on account of me, John chapter 6 verse 57. In the measure in which we spiritually feed upon Christ, our lives will bear the impress of those supremely beautiful lineaments of the life of Jesus. We will now consider the mode of eating the lamb. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, and with bitter herbs, or bitterness, shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, its head with its legs. And with the pertinence thereof. How entirely out of communion are the thoughts of men with the mind of God, in speaking of the death of Christ as merely that of a martyr. Apart from any reference to its atoning worth.
but roast with fire, or to destroy the dangerous dreams and delusions engendered by the fool's theorizings of men with regard to the sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus. This solemn expression tells of the manner in which God has dealt with the question of sin. Fire speaks of the holiness of God expressed in judgment. So, in the lamb roast with fire, we see in type, the Lord Jesus, personally exempt from sin and its penalty yet as our sinless, unblemished substitute exposed to the full, intense and searching action of the fire. The judgment of God expressed in wrath against sin. The Holy One, who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become God's righteousness in him, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. They were not to eat of it, raw nor boiled at all with water. Nothing was allowed to hinder the action of the fire. The word of God, was typified in the water, which was his constant delight and whose life in its entirety as the holy devoted and obedient man was regulated by it. Was not allowed to soften nor enfeeble the sense of divine wrath which pressed in upon his holy soul. Who can measure the depths of his suffering as he speaks of being laid in the dust of death and cries in the deep anguish of his spirit, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Psalm chapter 22 verses 1, 11. How the Spirit loves to linger over these typical details which serve to bring out the imperishable glories of the one who suffered unto death, even the death of the cross. Its head, with its legs and with its inward parts were all exposed to the searching action of the fire. The head would suggest those thoughts and counsels which he shared with the Father as a dependent man in this world, in full and uninterrupted communion with the Father. As he walked the legs, in that path in which was demonstrated by words and works the precious character of those thoughts and counsels. And moreover testify to that love, the inward parts, which impelled him to the accomplishment of that work the Father had given him to do. All the testing of these various parts brought forth nothing but sweet savour to God, and all this the Spirit would make available for us. For our intelligent appropriation as the food of that life which is ours in Christ Jesus. All is graciously set before us to enjoy and make our own as our feet stand in the way that leads through those desert lands where drought abides. But how much do we desire to possess these things? To know more and still more of that lowly mind which was in Christ Jesus, to walk devotedly in those ways which are fragrant with a love that many waters could not quench nor floods drown. To know more of that love that passeth knowledge. All is found in him, and possessing him we possess all things. How precious to the heart of God the Father is the Passover aspect of the death of Christ. In the rich mercy of a Saviour God we rejoice in all its precious and eternal fruits, our deliverance from death, our identification with Christ in resurrection life and our place in heavenly glory. But let us not forget for a moment that what stands alone in depth of suffering and efficacious value in the thoughts of God is the death of Christ. The Spirit's further references as to its observance in the wilderness, Numbers 9, and in the land, Joshua chapter 5, stamps it with a fundamental and permanent character beyond all other feasts.